HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jake Cohen, editorial director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we are diving into all things test kitchens, recipe development, magazines, and everything in between with Justin Chappell, my friend, as well as the culinary director at large of Food and Wine and the author of two cookbooks. We have Just Cook It and Mad Genius Tips. Thanks so much for coming, Justin. Oh my gosh, thanks for finally recording together. I'm so ready for this. Um, so like, this is kind of my favorite conversation because you have been someone that I have kind of always like looked to as I was building my career in test kitchens and food media. How did you start? Like, how do you get into this world that is really like, everyone always asks me like, oh, how do you break into food media? And every story about it is so unique because it's so difficult to get in. It's so true. And I actually, I feel like I answer this question quite a bit for two culinary students. Uh, You know, I'm sure you get just as many people reaching out as I do. And, um, you know, it first started with a passion for cooking. I mean, I, I don't think I went into this industry saying, this is the industry I want to work in. I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to work in food media. I actually woke up one day and said, I want to be a chef. So I 
uh, at the time was working in retail and said, you know what, I'm going to go back to culinary school and well, go to culinary school and um, learn how to cook. Uh, I cooked at home and I wanted some professional skills. So I did that and then started working in restaurants as a line cook. And, you know, it was kind of a pinch me moment when I finally got a job at Food and Wine because uh, it was totally unexpected. And the way it sort of happened was, you know, I volunteered for every opportunity I could while I was in culinary school, which led me to start attending food festivals. And in particular, I was attending the South Beach Wine and Food Festival um, down in Florida. And, you know, I met some people who knew some people who knew other people, and they kind of connected me and said, food and wine is looking for an intern. Um, but timing the, is everything. Timing is everything. And But you know what? I, th- I, I really think it was because I, I said yes to so many opportunities, and I remembered everybody I met. So if I met people who were kind of connected to others, I, I just stayed in touch with them. Um, and, you know, back in those days, this is, I'm talking like a decade ago, social media was not what it is today. Mm-hmm. So it was much harder. You had to intentionally stay in touch with people yeah. uh, via email or whatever. And I, I like what you, you said about like saying yes to everything because of the fact that without social media, the FaceTime is so important. People actually had to, you had to interact and meet people because it's not like, these big editors are responding to emails or yeah, really totally. anything. I mean, it was, it was a time where conversations were had either over the phone via long emails or ideally in person, which meant probably a lot more drinks than people are having today. <laughs> so internship, what was that like? How did that grow into a full-time position? So the surprising thing about my internship with Food & Wine is it actually didn't start cooking or in the test kitchen at all. I interned on the event marketing team. Uh, so I worked uh, as an intern helping to produce the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen, which you attended. Yes. It's a yes. very amazing event. It is, um, it's truly the party of the year. Yes. And it's I always say, I always describe it as magical because it feels that way. Uh, and so I worked on that event for six months. Um, it's funny. So the person I worked for... Um, Dila, uh, she's still there. She still produces it. But she actually was Gail Simmons' intern f- when Gail was the former Dila. So Gail Simmons of Top Chef used to produce the Food Mind Classic in Aspen. Dila was her intern. When Gail moved on to her amazing TV uh, career, Dila kind of replaced her. And then I kind of came on as Dila's intern l- much later. But, um, you know, I did that for like six months. And then I decided I missed cooking. And I... The, the, the everyone at Food & Wine is, is so friendly and they just really want to see everyone kind of grow and succeed. So the marketing team, in, team introduced me to the editorial team and I met with them and was like, let me cook. I want to work in the test kitchen. And so they brought me on as an intern there. Uh, and I only did that actually for a couple months before getting a full-time job. So Incredible. Uh, I love, and just because I had the exact same experience at Severo where I started as an intern and then got hired on, of the transition from my time as a line cook to then going into a test kitchen and realize that I have to change the way I think about everything, every recipe, every time I turn on the stove, I have to be thinking differently. What was that process like? How does that kind of... Um, dictate the way that you cook today? I, I love that question because when I, so I went to French Culinary Institute, which is now known as ICC, 
not to be confused with ICE or ICE, um, which is, I think, where you went, right? I went to CIA. But you went to CIA. Went to ICE. <laughs> yes, our food, we have our co-founder, Julie, two of our food editors. Yes. Um, so I went to FCI, which was French training, and it was all about precision. It was all about respect for tradition. And that. And when I worked in restaurants, it was it was fine dining. So it was very much like cut it exactly this way, clean it exactly that way. And when I moved into editorial, um, and and I'm, I'm sure you have very similar experiences, but when I started working in the test kitchen at Food & Wine, it was very much like, okay, don't make things perfect because that's not how a home cook exactly. will do it. And so I had to train myself not to cut things perfectly in order to get an accurate cooking time in a recipe. Or, But also, so, so to answer the question, it, it was... I had to train myself not to be precise and not to try to make things perfect. Um, and that was a really hard thing. I like it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, it, it, and that's a funny way to put it because you have to be thinking as the home cook. So we're providing guidelines in terms of the times, the amounts. We're weighing everything, seeing how many carrots, how many cups of diced carrots, how many ounces of carrots. But at the same time, we're also doing it thinking about the fact that someone's just going to grab a random carrot at the store and not really give the the time of day that we do to each and every recipe. Yeah, and we're also, at for me, whenever I'm developing or testing recipes, in the back of my mind, I'm, o- I'm always remembering that who there might be somebody using this recipe that doesn't have a lot of kitchen instinct, who doesn't know what, you know, caramelized means, who doesn't know what crisp tender means and so I'm constantly remembering reminding myself okay so if somebody reads this recipe are they going to know exactly what I mean and so sometimes you know as you know you give a couple different examples so you might say it's crisp tender you might say it's you know soft (laughs) now when we kind of think about food and wine and you working in a test kitchen and making your way up and that was kind of how I remember Sever is the conversation around chef recipes and adapting chef recipes for the home cook. And now when I think of you, I think of how many recipes that have just come and have been your brainchild and just things that you want to cook based on food trends that might be inspired by restaurants, but also might just be inspired by something seasonal that you really are digging in your kitchen. What was that process like of First, adapting recipes from chefs and then starting to think of the recipes you wanted to cook. So I love that you brought this up because it, whenever I talk to, you know, kind of people who are really trying to get into what we do, um, I try to explain to people that there's like two types of recipe testing. There is, you know, cross-testing or testing recipes from other people. And then there is recipe development where you're testing recipes that you generate out of your own mind. And they're very different Mm -hmm. because when you test, and I know you know this, especially working in the Sever Test Kitchen where you cook so many different people's food, um, you have to like cook and test the recipe all the while maintaining that other person's point of view. Yes. Which is a very, it's a very skill it's a very, it, it was something that was really hard for me to learn. Especially because they're not there to taste it. So it might come out and every might, everyone might think it's absolutely delicious, but at the end of the day, they might have intended it to be slightly different. Mm-hmm, 100%. And, you know, working at, you know, 
every brand is different, but occasionally you're challenged with streamlining or simplifying a chef's recipe. So in those cases, it becomes even more difficult because you're maybe trying to remove ingredients. I mean, if a chef gives you something that is a hundred portions, but it has one head of garlic and now you're cutting it down to serve four. You're like, how do you do the math there? Is the garlic even necessary anymore? But so going back to how that, how I transitioned from really starting with that, moving into recipe development, which is creating things out of my own head. Um, it was challenging. And I think the reason it was challenging was because I always had somewhere to start. And then when you move into developing your own recipes, you, you really are, you really have to decide, okay, like what, what's the beginning here? What do I start with? And so for me, I, I tend to like to start with, you know, a theme or a holiday. I hate to say that, but a holiday or, I mean, those um, are the number one times when people cook. (laughs) It's so true. Um, I mean, I think working in a magazine versus like maybe a blog or something like that is a little bit easier because you're, you are starting with, you know, you're, you're starting with a story idea. Correct. So it's okay. We're going to do Thanksgiving side dishes, or we're going to do a story on summer grilling with, you know, vegetarian grilling story. And so you kind of have somewhere to start. Um, but then of course, inspiration comes from a million other places. I love it. Um, now you've done everything from food and wine cover stars to then obviously they've expanded their digital presence and video. What was that like seeing the evolution of print media, especially given like what that means today in the larger realm of like so many magazines, unfortunately closing and how print has had to adapt to keep the landscape. I mean, I think for me, it, the digital age really made my career. Uh, I started at Food & Wine when we had two people on our digital team. And those two people did everything from run the website to do social media. I remember when we just started our Twitter account. I remember before we had Instagram. I remember when we tried to do Vine. Um, <laughs> I would love to see Justin Chapel as a Vine star. I still have my Vine videos saved on my phone. I'll show them to you. Please. I, oh, gosh. Okay, I'm not going to go on that tangent. But uh, When we promote this on Feed Feed, I would like to share those to our stories. Okay. We will be sharing your Vines. I do have a cornbread recipe that... that In I five turned- seconds? That I turned into no, it's a it's a cornbread that I turned into a Pac-Man video. <laughs> Love, but that's the kind of thing that you think of the departure from print and the levity that you're able to really accomplish in digital. Totally, and you know, so kind of the food and wine transition was felt like it was overnight because all of a sudden we hired a big digital team and we were like, we got we got to make this right, and that's when we started getting into video and. With Mad Genius Tips, which is my video series with food and wine, I mean, we're, I think we have eight or nine seasons now, which is mind-blowing to me. We've done hundreds and hundreds of episodes, but um, we started it out as like this experiment. And I think that's how everyone kind of got into video early on, especially in food media, was nobody really knew what people wanted to consume or how they wanted to consume it. And so it was real. it was kind of a struggle. And you know, it was like, okay, let's just make videos that we think are going to be fun and let's hope they stick. And I think that's very different than today. Yeah. Because today we have, we, you first, it's, it feels like you're creating video for different platforms mm-hmm. purposely. And we are. Yeah. Because they have different audiences, audiences and requirements. And it's just, 
It's overwhelming. But I did like that the concept behind, obviously, this video series that did so well was rooted in the fact that you were taking techniques from chefs that would then be simplified for the home cook of how they can incorporate it into their everyday cooking. Um, And to me, that was such a wonderful transition of like the food and wine that just gives you adapted recipes from chefs, but instead takes the highlights and transitions them, transitions them for home cook recipes. Yeah. And you know, I'm in all honesty, I've felt like mad genius tips has been a roller coaster because I think at the very beginning when we launched it, it was incredible. And a lot of the reason is because of what you just said, where I was actually taking what I learned in restaurants as a line cook and as well as what I learned during recipe testing. And I just took little, very simple ideas and we made videos out of them. I mean, the very first, fi- the very first video we did was trussing a chicken with its own skin. And that people have, chefs have been using that for roast chicken for Ever. centuries. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know how long, but <laughs> it, I mean, but then we kind of, then food hacks came and <laughs> yes. Oh, that's an interest. I didn't even think about that. That's and such an interesting. Yeah. So these tip videos we did started becoming more ridiculous and more ridiculous because that's what people wanted to consume. And now it's kind of taken another turn on the roller coaster. And now it's kind of back to technique and back to, you know, recipe driven content. Amazing. Let's dive into my favorite discussion, which is you are now an at-large editor, the culinary director at large. And what that means is you are now freed up for a freelance career as well. Um, what is freelance like for you? Do you <laughs> enjoy it? Explain a little bit about like the process of how you're pitching yourself or recipes to other publications. So this is like the hardest thing to talk about because I think at large means different things for so many different Every people. publication. Every publication, exactly. And one thing, just in food media in general right now, I'm seeing I'm seeing so many of my colleagues and friends making the same sort of move. Yeah. And they want to. And the crazy thing is when people first hear it, especially people in the industry who are not familiar with what that means – it scares everybody, I think, because people are like, oh my God, does this mean jobs are going away? Does this mean there was a fight? Does this mean they didn't get along? Does this mean this person really wants like bigger, better things? Like it, it could mean all of those things, but it might not mean any of those things. And it really depends on the person. Um, for me, the reason I wanted to kind of make that move was because I really wanted to focus on some personal projects and, but I also still, love food and wine with my whole entire heart and I love the people there and I didn't want to see that career or that relationship sort of end but I also wanted to do things like write more books yeah because that is very hard to do when you have a full-time job as you know I know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's exhausting because I see you shopping and cooking late at night on your Instagram 11 p.m (laughs) and I so my second book I wrote while I was full-time at Food & Wine. Mm -hmm. And I mean, both books I wrote full-time at Food & Wine. But um, the second book, it was very overwhelming. I was cooking and testing recipes all night long, every weekend. Uh, It took twice as long as I wanted it to take to to develop the recipes. And I wanted to do more of that. I wanted to do a lot more TV. I wanted to do a lot more video. And so... And I think it's it's important to kind of discuss. It's not like 
a publication is going to hold you back from that. But it just comes to with the thing of like a full-time job comes with other things you have to do throughout your day. Yeah. I mean, a full-time job is a full-time job in any industry. And yeah. it's hard to do personal things when you have a full-time job. I mean, even just look at parents who maybe their entire free, all of their free time is absorbed in soccer practice or yeah. running errands for the kids. I mean, that's, that's personal to them. Um, and, and those sorts of things still exist in my life, but writing a book is a full-time job. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. Um, will you tell us more about that process of writing your book of what was your idea behind it? Obviously it's like we are in another kind of realm of connection. We share the same editor and uh, agent, which I love. Which is funny. It's um, such a small world. Yes. What did you want to accomplish with your first solo book separate from Mad Genius Tips, which is right, obviously... because I did write a book with Food & Wine mm -hmm. called Mad Genius Tips, which is a collection of recipes based on my video series. And I love that book so much. It was so fun to work on. Uh, but my second book, was I wanted it to be so much more personal. Uh, I wanted it to be food that was inspired by my upbringing and inspired by what I cook at home every day. Uh, but I also wanted it to... I kind of wanted to t show people, teach people, tell people that food doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be delicious. And I think a lot of people, especially home cooks, get so concerned with perfection because of the world that we live in with, you know, TV shows that are like, this was cut a quarter inch too thick or, you know this lacks acid and like, or this is ugly because it's That's brown. That's such an interesting point. The competition mentality yes. of what we're in, in terms of the, I feel like the most watched shows right now are these like cutthroat, tear people down, Gordon Ramsay screaming in people's faces. Like they're, they're what become memes. They're what be, become like the viral video clips when it comes to food. It's either that or, or Sandra Lee pouring vodka, but like that, that's the, <laughs> those are the only things that I see kind of trickling out to like people who might not be inherently digesting food content. Yeah, and I think I, it's what I really I I yes the competition shows all of that, but I think it's really what I learned in my career at Food and Wine, which is like there are chefs' recipes and then there are home cook recipes, and my job there at Food and Wine was to put them together to make them one mm -hmm. thing, and I think that so many people at home try to achieve chef perfection. But my, I don't even try to do that at home. In my mind, I'm like, no, no, no. This is like what I cook and it, and I'm going to use five ingredients tonight exactly. because that's all I want to use. And when As I long want, as it has enough salt, as long as it's not raw, exactly. we're good. And if I want those like, like those fancy meals or if I want those things that have like 20 different components, like I'm going to go out to eat. And yeah. that that's another amazing part of my life. Like I love going out to eat and learning from chefs and eating their food and like experiencing something that I would never create at home. Um, it's to me, those are two different worlds. And I think that one of the things I wanted to kind of teach people in my book was like, those aren't the same world. Those should be two different worlds going out to eat and eating a chef's food. Shouldn't be what you're trying to do at home. You should just be cooking for you or your family or your friends. And it's so <clears throat> when I sent out the galley for my book, which I'm not sure if you've done that yet. No, no. Okay. <laughs> Manuscript is due on okay. Saturday. Oh my gosh. I Why know. are we here? I know, I know, I know. Um, 
So when I started sending out like digital galleys in my book to like friends and stuff, just get kind of get feedback, I sent a copy to Andrew Zimmern and um, Andrew wrote back and he said, you know, the name of your book says it all. He's like, food doesn't have to be complicated or scary. Um, so just cook it. Cause that's the name of my book. Just yeah. <laughs> I love it. And so I've been saying that ever since. And it's like, it made so much sense. Like he got it. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And now what was it like having the, the background of food and wine and having that name of this legacy brand behind you when you were launching a book for so many people who dream about writing a cookbook and get a cookbook deal. One of the huge questions afterwards is marketing, right? And how do you sell a book? How do you position yourself? I went to your incredible launch party at William Sonoma for your just cook it. And it was like insane, but what were kind of like the key things in your head that you wanted to accomplish? So, in full transparency, it was really difficult, the marketing of my book, because of my career at Food & Wine. And I know that sounds like really wild, but when my book came out, it's, I mean, it, I think it's still th- like this, but when my book came out, everyone was sort of like in competition because mm. the industry was shrinking. People were always trying to get the same audience and appeal to the same audience. And one of the things that I found difficult was trying to promote my book to other media outlets, being on staff full time at another media outlet, which for many of them were a competition. And I think I struggled a little bit with that. Um, I did hire a publicist when my book came out and she was incredible. And we would have like kind of weekly check-ins and she would say, listen, like, I, these people aren't going to cover a book that's by somebody who's full-time at Food & Wine because they, you got, they look at Food & Wine as a competitor. And I felt like that was a little hard on my on yeah. me personally because I was like, oh my God, I like poured my heart and soul into this book and like I feel a little bit like I'm getting the short end of the stick because of the career I have. And I, I was actually just having this conversation with um, our friend Sarah Carey oh, about the shift in media before. And I think it goes pretty much hand in hand with what we were talking about, about people who are at large and the reason why it's becoming so much more popular than it was potentially in the past of the kind of focus on personalities within food media, that it's not these kind of just generic brands that everyone is working towards this invisible person of a magazine, but instead it's the unique voices of the editors that are becoming the the true authorities, not the brand itself. The brand is just the sum of the parts of its staff. Right. And I think that's important. And I'm seeing that we're like slowly getting to a place where like people are lifting each other up and we're having this like fun banter between publications and editors and I like I guess I hope that's the future when you do your next book I feel like we'd hopefully get to a point in which that wouldn't be the case because in my head especially in a time of like food media having its peaks and valleys of like everyone should be kind of supporting each other yeah and you know I think that yes I think I I'm I 100% agree on that and I do think it there's, I think it's a lot better with digital because mm. it's easier. It's not, things come and go so much more quickly. Um, and there isn't this feeling that like, 
okay, we have to be really careful about what we put in print because we don't want someone else to put the same thing in print because then it lives there and it doesn't go away and you can't hide it. And I think that with digital, people are a little more flexible because they're like, you know what? If there's overlap, there's overlap because it doesn't matter because it's going to like kind of either disappear or we'll just like post another story quicker. And But to, to, to your point a few minutes ago, lifting each other up, you know, I'm not going to go on a tangent here, but I think a lot of people think that the different food magazines or the different food publications are all competing against each other and that the staffs hate each other. And they, I, I don't know if that's the impression, but sometimes it feels that way. And that's like, I totally disagree with that because Mm -hmm. anytime something happens with another food brand, I mean, it's devastating. Yeah. Like if, for example, like when Sever cut back their issues, I mean, that was devastating and I've never worked there. And even though Sever in some way probably is a competitor of food and wine, it's scary and it's sad and you're watching your friends either lose jobs or lose work or, and it just takes away from our industry as a whole. And the same is true. I would never want anything negative, negative to happen to Bon Appetit or, you know, and I feel, and I feel like the staffs at these different brands probably feel the same way about food and wine because, you know, one less food publication or one less printing a year just affects us all as food writers and food content creators. And so hopefully people don't get that impression, but sometimes feels like they do. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Now, social media is here. You are active on Instagram. I love all the things you post. We talk a lot about like individual brands on this podcast and how someone will present themselves on social. Uh, I know something that's come up in your personal account a few times is like, the difference when you post food photos versus photos of your dog or yourself or you and Jason. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What is your approach to your brand on social? So I struggle so much with digital branding of my personal brand because, um, because of just that. It's so hard sometimes to gauge what people want and what people don't want because we all, I don't know if we all, but I definitely look at my Instagram as like my channel. It's like my show. And so the content I post on there, I try to keep kind of in line with like my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what I find, and this is the difficult part, is that I edit myself probably too much based on the analytics. And anyone who has, you know, a business account on Instagram knows that there is an analytics page that you check as frequently as you want and you can kind of gauge like how well your 
your content's doing or what people want or what people don't want or what time of day they want it and what types of people are viewing it. And I sometimes feel like I edit myself too much because of that. And to your point, if I post a picture of my dog or I post a picture of my husband, Jason, I mean, I lose followers. People don't like the photos. I mean, it's like crazy. And sometimes I let that get the best of me. You can't. You <laughs> I know, can't. but that's that's the, the trolls win. The trolls win, I know. But sometimes I find like, for example, if it really happens quite honestly when I post pictures of me and my husband, and I hate to say that, but it's probably because many of my fo- followers are homophobic and they don't like seeing that I'm married to a man. And I would, I think the last time I posted a picture of myself and Jason, we lost, I, I lost like, I think like 200 followers in like hours. That's crazy. And it was crazy. And I took to my stories and I posted a, you know, some text that was like, I can't believe this. This is crazy. And every time I do that, people are writing back to me. They're like, why are you letting this bother you? <laughs> I don't know. It's I, just... th- I know. Obviously, it's always because it's a, it, and it's part of the conversation around like if Instagram takes away likes, mm. the, the discussion of how we find validation through engagement on social, which is like everyone's guilty of it. I'm very guilty of it. And um, at the same time, I also then believe I was talking to someone about the conversation of do you then not post that stuff or do you continue to do that and instead just train a more engaged following that loves both your food and your pictures of you and Jason? To me, I don't think you've lost anything with those 200 people if they do not want to engage with the content that's inherently Justin. I think that's exactly right. I think, but the hardest part about that is retraining yourself. Correct. Correct. It's, it's, getting used to it's so different from media or in the sense of like if something bombs then guess what they're not going to let you pitch that same story it's the next exactly month exactly the opposite of what i've done for 10 years yeah. which is you create stories for your audience which is your readers and i've been treating social media as if it was a print publication and it's not uh so i think it's correct i need to retrain myself to create the stuff I want when I want and engage the people who truly want to engage with me. So the last thing I kind of want to cover with you is Food Network Kitchen, which Uh, you've been doing these like incredible cooking tutorials. What has that been like? What do you see in this kind of platform of an app teaching people how to cook this way? It's so different from kind of every other platform. It's so true. It's sort of like the Peloton of cooking. Um, and give like a, what, what would be your like two line explanation of what so you're doing? So Food Network Kitchen is a, an app, a mobile app where you can take on demand and live cooking classes with pros, food pros. So everyone from cookbook authors to chefs like Jeffrey Zakarian. Um, and it's not just Food Network stars. Food Network Kitchen has really kind of curated this incredible group of people um, including some of your guests, like Erin McDowell, teaches mm-hmm. many classes, and she's so talented and so fun to watch because I learn s- something new every time. Pie queen. Yes, she is a pie queen. Um, and so it's fun. And it's this new kind of innovative way of engaging with an audience in a live way that I haven't experienced before because you're not talking at the, the audience, you're talking with the audience because the idea is that they're cooking along with you. So it kind of reminds me of 
videos you see or movies you see where the character is kind of cooking along with Jacques Pepin on PBS or yeah. Julia Child. It's like kind of very reminiscent of that, except much more interactive because you can uh, write comments, you can write questions, and whoever is teaching the class can kind of answer them live, which I is really exciting. That. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison to kind of like the old school of how. I feel like our parents would cook with a, a television show on Food Network or PBS playing. That's how you would make the recipe alongside someone. Yeah. And now, and they were like, you, you would record it on a VHS and then play it back. Yeah. Or you'd say, I remember, I remember my grandmother would watch Jacques or Yankin, Martin Yanyet with on Yankin Cook, and she would literally sit there with a piece of paper and write down the recipe as the person cooked because she obviously was a cooking live, but it was also a time when you couldn't just print out a recipe. Yeah. And so I think it's like kind of that 2.0 or 10.0. I love it. <laughs> and do you like enjoy interacting with people? What is that process like? It's so different from obviously working in a magazine in which you're developing or testing a recipe and then it doesn't go out for another month or six months depending on what issue you're working on and then how do, how do you deal with like the live time i mean i think it's most exciting for me that's the best part uh i really love engaging with an audience it's partly why i love attending and kind of conducting demonstrations at food festivals and classes and stuff like that because i think i feed off their energy which i know is hard to understand when you're like on you know, going through a screen, but having people write in and either just leave a comment or ask a question, it kind of changes what you're doing. And it really, you know, helps you tell a better story with whatever it is you're teaching, because you might totally forget that people at home don't understand why you snap the end off a, off a green bean. And, and so for someone to write in who doesn't understand that and being able to kind of, you know, change direction and answer a question really, reminds you of the skill level of home cooks and what they're looking for and how everyone is on a different spectrum. Amazing. We have made it to our lightning round. This oh, is gosh. kind of just, we're going to do a, a few questions, fun, short, just kind of gauge your, what you're thinking. Uh, first one being like, who do you love to follow on Instagram right now? <laughs> lightning round. Oh my gosh. I mean, Erin McDowell. Yeah. Love her. Susan Spunyan. Yes. Yes. I love how, because so Erin does these like beautiful anecdotes with all of her photos. Um, and I think obviously in a world where everyone's losing text of, of, of word count on their stories to see like a really like fleshed out caption to go with a photo. Is I love this. Um, what advice would you give to someone, like you said before, who is looking to get into your exact job? I would say, say yes to every opportunity and don't think you're going to move up the ladder very quickly. Love that. Um, when was the last time you really impressed yourself with how good a recipe you developed came out? Actually, it was last week I was developing a recipe for Food Network Kitchen and I did this um, brothy pasta situation mm -hmm. and I'm not going to give away all the details yet, but it I couldn't believe how delicious it was and I think it's because it was so simple. <laughs> <laughs> the best recipes. Yeah. Um, the last recipe disaster where it was just so bad you had to walk away like you couldn't you like there was no salvaging oh my gosh i can't even remember. it was probably a cake that i was 
It was probably, no, actually, okay. So I was developing a recipe for food and wine, a summer issue. And I was trying to do this like frozen dessert situation with chocolate and peanut butter and whatever. But it was like this no bake um, sort of muffin or cupcake. And it was so bad. We just scrapped the whole recipe <laughs> and I wrote the recipe. I developed it. I sent it off to a cross tester. The cross tester came back with like lots of feedback and I was like, you know what? I think let's move on and let's start over. <laughs> I think that's such a great kind of thing to remind people of, of not every, everything doesn't always work out. No. And even it's sometimes it requires like just many tests and you end up with a beautiful product. And sometimes you, it just inspires what the next thing will be. And mm-hmm. for that, some it's just it's equally important to have kind of given the spark for the new idea. This is like my favorite part. We do fuck Mary Kill. And I'm gonna do it with kind of like some of the most popular recipes on the internet. So we're gonna do sheet pan recipes, slow cooker recipes, or pressure cooker recipes. Oh gosh. Sheet pan, slow cooker, pressure cooker. Yes. Okay. Oh, gosh. I would probably fuck a pressure cooker recipe. Steaming. <laughs> Steaming all the way. Um, I would probably marry a sheet pan recipe. The best. I, because agree. I agree. It'll last forever and will always make you happy. Uh, and I will probably kill a slow cooker recipe. I, f- I probably would have answered exactly the same. I mean, it's probably already dead because it's been cooking for like six hours. <laughs> Love it. Um, what is exciting you in food right now? Whether it be in restaurants of like a meal you had that blew you away or just a magazine article you read? I think quite honestly, what excites me the most is neither of those things. It's the fact that the food world is focusing so much on, you know, charitable causes. Mm. Um, in particular, one thing that and I'm not trying to get political at all, but like one of the things that I find really interesting is how many chefs and restaurants are focusing on like mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and trying to prevent that. And I've seen that kind of around the country a little bit. And I think it's something that's important and it needs to be talked about. Uh, There are a lot of issues that need to be talked about, but I think the fact that like chefs, restaurants and the food community as a whole feels so comfortable getting involved in those things is like really what, I, I think that's probably the most exciting thing. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any last thoughts on where you want your career to go in the next few years? Oh my gosh. I'm like just trying to figure out where my career is going to go in the next couple months. <laughs> but I would hope that I am still able to do what I do today because then that means our industry is strong and thriving. I love that. Thank you so much for coming. Thank this you. was such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Feed Feed and myself at Jake Cohen. If you have a tip on who the next social media culinary star will be, send us a DM. We will see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.